You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. In a market dominated by passive players and saturated with liquidity, how can investors find an edge? Trevor Modell has spent his career at the cutting edge, making markets and pricing derivatives alongside some of the best investors in the world, and he's been searching for an answer to this question. Today, he shares with Raoul what he's learned on his journey in finance. Trevor now runs an artificial intelligence team at Lazard Asset Management, where they use machine learning to identify patterns in markets that are too complex for the human brain to recognize. And they do this in order to reliably generate alpha too hidden for human investors to capture. You know, I've actually heard Warren Buffett say that the whole value versus growth paradigm to him is meaningless because of course the valuation of future expected cash flows is going to be dependent on their rate of growth. Trevor talks to Raoul about how when investors are empowered with machine learning and data science, they too can see a blurring of the lines, not between value and growth, but between the quantitative and the fundamental. So that's why we call this interview the new frontier. And, you know, Raoul and Trevor, they really enjoyed this conversation. Sometimes it can get a bit technical because, you know, this, this is at the cutting edge. Um, but I really think that you're going to find this conversation valuable. Uh, so please enjoy. Trevor, great to have you with us on Real Vision. You were recommended by um, a mutual friend of both of ours, Mike Green, who said, listen, you've got to sit and talk to Trevor. And once I started looking into your background, I realized we share almost an identical background, slightly different timings. So talk, talk us a bit about your career, where, where you came from. Sure. So thanks for having me on. This is wonderful. Um, I started my career at Credit Suisse in the exotic derivatives uh, team in London. And then I moved to New York and spent more time in exotic derivatives. And I made a stop at Goldman Sachs, where I structured equity derivatives through the financial crisis. And after Goldman Sachs, I went to a firm called Susquehanna International Group, where I ran macro and derivative strategy. And that was a great experience where I was exposed to really thoughtful professionals who were at the cutting edge of making markets in both options and ETFs. Um, from Susquehanna, I moved over to the buy side and worked with Pierre Lagrange at GLG Partners. Um, and it was a, also a wonderful experience, met a lot of wonderful people, and it really changed the way uh, we worked on risk management at the firm. Were you in GLG London or New York? I was in GLG London. Okay. Uh, my, Were you in the same office as I was? Were you in one Curzon Street? Absolutely. So the long rows of desks and you know cramped office space, but a beautiful building and a beautiful location. Yeah. So then after after GLG, uh, where did you go from there? So I moved back to New York, and I ran long short risk for Ballyaz and the asset management, and that was. A phenomenal group of people. I have enormous respect for Dimitri and what he's built. 
I'm really happy to see his performance. Um, and you know, that really demonstrated you know, what you know, a high caliber, um, integrated, quantitative, and fundamental firm looked like. Um, they did a really good job you know, bringing the quantitative pieces together with the fundamental pieces, and they continue to do so. I think that's a large reason for their current success. So I was really happy to see that. They, they retooled as a business, didn't they, um, a few years ago? I guess this was part of that restructuring where they, they changed it into a much more modern firm, better risk management. I think it was really the the integration of of the you know, data science. And there's a great guy over there, Carson Bonick, who's done a great job leading out the data effort, as well as bringing in and you know, focusing the the long short investors. Uh, they did a really nice job. So I'm really happy to see their success. So how then did you get into Lazard? And talk us through what you're doing at Lazard, because this is super interesting. Sure. So about three years ago, I, I saw the opportunity to really bring tools of machine learning AI into the investment process. One of the things I realized is good investors tend to have very repeatable processes. And the tools for AI had developed to a point where you could bring them in and start integrating them to do jobs that investors really found challenging. So I moved to Lazard about two years ago, and I run a group in Palo Alto called Lazard Labs. And our, our focus is to bring cutting edge AI and data science into the investment process and develop investment funds. So hedge funds, you know, long only products uh, for our investors. Let's dig into this AI because this is a massively misunderstood or not even misunderstood, just not understood at all thing. Talk us through how you conceptually see it first and then we can talk a little bit more detail about how it actually works in, in, in practice. AI is a really broad catch-all term. And all AI really is is more advanced analytics and modeling. So the, the advantage of AI is we can model things we couldn't model before, and we can analyze data that we couldn't analyze before. So a great example is textual data. AI is made in analyzing large amounts of text data, let's say all of the 10Ks for this year, right? that text can be analyzed if you ask it very specific questions. So one could load up all of the 10Ks into a database, write a program to extract, let's say the length of the risk disclosure section of the 10K, and then see how that's evolved for a given company over a period of time, or compare across industry groups the length of a risk disclosure section. Right, that's a very simplistic application, but that's one that a, a fundamental investor couldn't do until they had the tools to actually do large-scale textual analysis. That's an example. What, what kind of information does that give you then? I, can, I presume it's part of a much larger data set that you're looking for something. Are you spitting out 
trades based on that or are you doing analysis and research based on these kind of things where you would then look in further? How does this all, in that particular example you gave? So that's a simple example, right? That's sort of a toy example. But it gives you some context as to how natural language processing could be helpful. Uh, what we think about is you know, a broad array of these types of signals, right? So what we're doing is asking questions of a computer, right? Building systems to go and answer those questions using AI tools. And I think this is the key takeaway, which is AI doesn't ask the questions for you. Right? Investors still have to ask the questions, right? And I think as good investors ask a lot of questions, some of which we can answer, some of which we can't. Right? Doing a discounted cash flow model is a question we can answer. We know how to do that. But going and analyzing the sentiment of a earnings report is something that's very challenging for us because we'd have to go and outsource that and manually score every single earnings call. So AI gives us the ability to go and broadly analyze things like earnings call sentiment, right? News sentiment, um, changes to risk disclosure, uh, linkages between companies. So when we're disclosing competitors in a 10K or a Q, we can actually go and identify those competitors, build a graph and build maps of companies to understand how they compete, as well as understand how they're interrelated, which right now is really important because we're talking about potential bankruptcies on the, on the horizon and you know, one bankruptcy can lead to another bankruptcy. Right? If a supplier goes bankrupt, that can impair a producer and that producer could go bankrupt because they're not getting the supplies they need in time. So when we talk about these data sets, I, I think people are shocked at the, the amount of data sets available. Um, you know, you and I talked uh, last week or so about Orbital Insights and the kind of data sets they've got. Talk me through some of the data sets that are available or some that are in private hands, because I know, for example, JP Morgan has real-time banking data anywhere in the whole United States, which is an extraordinarily powerful data set. Talk me through some of these data sets out there, because people don't really understand the magnitude of this. There's an enormous amount of data that's now available. Much of it's available via API. So integrating those data sets into a relatively simple Python script is very easy. Um, so data that's available via API runs the gamut from you know, tick data, right? Most of the economic data that you get out of the FRED database. Um, we can scrape or pull down K and Q data earnings call data. Um, there's tickerized news data now that's available from both Bloomberg and Reuters. And while that doesn't sound like a big step forward, it's actually a really valuable tool and data set because Reuters or Bloomberg have effectively taken all the news related to a given stock and classified it for you in one specific feed. So if I want all the news for Microsoft, right? I can go and get that. Um, and that's true for any other company. Obviously, I'm beholden to Reuters or Bloomberg's classification, but doing that on my own is, is rather time consuming. 
and they've done that for us. So that's a wonderful addition uh, from a textual perspective. Additionally, there's sentiment data available. And then there's an entire swath of alternative data. We call it alternative just because it doesn't really fit into the the normal data set that typical it's investors have used in the past. That terminal, yeah. yeah, exactly. So you know, Orbital Insights, a, a really interesting company that have produced you know, high quality geospatial data and there's company specific data. So they've mapped things like all of the sites of big box stores, you know, all of the locations of new construction. Um, they've mapped the, how high floating top oil uh, storage containers are. So they've done some really interesting they've work. Done, they've even done corn by looking at infrared imaging to find out how advanced the corn planting season is. And this is all done from granular satellite data. I mean, it's truly extraordinary, right? It is. It's an, in, and that's the... Uh, the company really found its roots in doing agricultural research, you know, looking at you know, patterns, you know, color, infrared, you know, the array of imaging on, on plantings to see how far along plantings were, how many acres had been planted, et cetera. So there's an enormous amount of data you can extract from the sky. And they do a really good job of not only doing data extraction, but they process the data for you and make it available as an index or as a feed. So all of the compute intensive work is outsourced to them. And I think that's, there are many more data providers that are effectively outsourcing the compute and providing prepackaged signal data, which an investor can integrate into their models, um, Orbital being one of them. And how do you then go about, because there's so many data sets, right? So first you're trying to get as much data, and then you need to ask the questions. And I'll come on to all of this because I've got a ton of questions I want to ask you. But right, data sets. So you've got Google, social media, all the news feeds, all of the price feeds, all of the 10K data, stuff, you know, the alternative data, the credit card data. I mean, how do you go about even thinking about what data sets, what are the data sets available and which ones you need for what you're trying to achieve? I actually go the other way. So rather than going and hoovering up a whole bunch of data and looking for some random signal in it, I think the key, the approach that we take and one that's you know, less, I guess, challenging to conceive of is we ask questions and we test hypotheses using data that's available. So we'll make a hypothesis about some feature in the market. We'll go and find the right data. We'll build, build a feed, we'll build an experiment, we'll test it uh, using a robust set of you know, tools, right? We'll look at the output of those tests and then determine whether or not that's a worthwhile pursuit. And you know, I, I think this focus on questions is something that really is differentiated. Doesn't that then come down to the human element, right? The quality of the questioning mind, which is pretty every, pretty much every investor. It's your team getting together and saying, okay, these are things that we're observing that may be a hypothesis and then we need to test it. I mean, that, that requires a lot of 
intellectual power from the team that doesn't lie within the AI itself. It actually is the human element. And I think that's, that's a key piece. So uh, good AI today requires those questions, right? We still have to build the models to, we build models to answer questions. We don't build models specifically to ask questions. And while there might be some people who are looking at you know, unsupervised AI tools that are producing really interesting insights, we're really focused on having the AI as you know, something like an analyst, right? Or augmenting the analytical process so that we're building better portfolios that are potentially more robust, that are more reactive to changes in market environment, that potentially are more adaptable to, to regime shifts and, and you know, also idiosyncratic shifts in individual companies. I'll come into a lot of that in a bit. Do you want to get an understanding of the different players in the space? So, you know, what makes Renaissance Capital, Renaissance Capital, Two Sigma, Two Sigma versus what you guys are doing? How is the space defined in terms of what types of players are involved? Well, rather than you know, commenting on some others, um, we think there's a wide array of, or I see a wide array of, applications in AI across finance. Investors, you know, many fundamental investors have now embraced uh, scraping the web to extract specific data sets. And I think that's becoming very commonplace you know, across the long only and hedge fund world. So going to you know, specific websites or data providers, scraping data, pulling that into a database, you know, potentially writing an application where you can pull that into Excel. Like, I think that's pretty, pretty standard. And that just becomes another feature in your model or enables you to track something that you had done manually in an automated way. Things like car sales by VIN, things like that. Um, so you know, as you move to some of the more quantitative shops, and I, again, I'm not, privy to what they're working on, sure. but using larger data sets, um, using potentially AI tools to screen signals for uh, you know, forecasting sharp from those signals, right? that's kind of another, another application that can be used. And I think the, you know, we talked about alternative data sets a second ago really assessing the signal quality of those alternative data sets because many of these data sets are relatively costly. And before someone spends a lot of money to acquire them and then has the recurring annual cost of, of both purchasing data but also maintaining and integrating that data into a process, using machine learning and AI tools to evaluate the signal quality is an important step. So many alternative data purchasers are using AI and machine learning to assess that signal quality. Fascinating. And it sounds to me that one of the misunderstandings people have is there is no black box. It doesn't really happen that way because the elements of questions, and sure, some other 
maybe more advanced in creating AI questioning. Sure, I'm sure people are working on it, but there doesn't sound that there is a black box that comes up with magic answers and he who develops the best black box wins. It's a much more nuanced process than that. I agree with that. And the, the concept of black box is kind of this amorphous term uh, that's been thrown around for models and systems that we really can't explain that well. And there's an element of that in AI. There's an element of that in machine learning. But really in any investment process, we're asking a question, which is, if we do something, does the market, or do we deserve to get paid for it? So really understanding what we deserve to get paid for, what, what value does, we're bringing to the mean? What does that so, mean, deserve to get paid for? So think about... Think about back in the early days of block trading. There are some very well-known investors who made a lot of money setting up both hedge funds that effectively did block trading, as well as desks that did block trading on the sell side. Block traders are effectively providing liquidity at a time of need to institutional investors or large investors. And they deserve to get compensated for the risk they're taking of making a large purchase or sale at a given period of time. And effectively, um, they're creating somewhat of an insurance product for an investor who wants to get out of a position. And they should get a return for that service that they provide. They're taking some risk, they get some return for taking that risk. For a factor investor, let's say a value investor, there's a different service that a value investor provides to the market. A value investor is typically buying stocks that are low multiple stocks. And if they're building a long short portfolio, a market neutral value investor, they're selling short stocks that have high multiples. Right? So they're effectively doing two things. Number one, they're providing capital to companies that have low multiples that have likely seen their multiples decline, right? So in a way, they're, they're writing a put on low multiple companies, right? And for writing that put, they should get some, some decay, some, some carry on that. Um, they're also selling short companies that have high multiples, right? Betting that those high multiple companies either remain the same or or go down in value, and they're effectively writing a call option on, on that, as, that aspect of the portfolio. Um, so they should get paid that decay on both, in both wings, right? and they should make money if there is mean reversion between those. You, know, you see multiple expansion on the ones you bought, multiple contractions on the one you sold. You should make money in the middle for taking that, that risk in the belly. And every single strategy likely has a rationale for being paid. Um, and understanding that's very important. So for, a, um, for an investor, like these black box strategies, right, there are aspects that you don't know, but there are also some features of the strategy that 
effectively you should be paid for. You're taking some risk that you should be rewarded for. Do you use the AI to help with portfolio construction as well in understanding you know, how to construct the best portfolios? Because now you're talking about embedded within the bets that you take, there is a, an implicit risk reward, let's say. Do you do that at portfolio level as well and, and allow hypothesis testing in that basis away from the standard VAR risk management models, that kind of stuff? When I think about an investment process, I really break it down into four levels. The very, and this is true really for any investor in any asset class. The first piece is universe selection. So what assets are you going to include in your universe? What do you pick from as potential investments? And we use machine learning tools to identify universes uh, and we use clustering mechanisms to identify assets that are similar. So what's a clustering mechanism? Uh, uh, that's a, so at the simplest <laughs> level, like GIX classification is, you could argue a clustering mechanism, right? We're labeling companies by what they do, right? In sector, industry, sub-industry groups. Well, there are some sectors, let's just say automotive, where there are some real outliers in that sector. And the properties of the companies may be dissimilar. So what we do is we use clustering to find companies that have similar properties, similar revenue growth, similar multiples, similar volatilities, similar betas, and we can go on and on. But there are an array of machine learning tools available now that enable clustering that potentially is more precise than the GIX classification method and adequately deals with outliers in industry groups and potentially reclassifies them with, with other stocks that have similar properties. So in universe selection, we're, we're using machine learning. In stock selection, which is the second phase um, of the investment process, we use an array of tools to select stocks that you know, we think will go up or sell short stocks that we think will go down. In the portfolio construction process, we're extending some of the algorithms that we're using for individual stock selection to understand at a portfolio level, what's the likelihood of this portfolio achieving a given objective. Let's say we want a portfolio that produces absolute returns with a specified vol. We are using uh, an array of tools to help to construct those portfolios. And then you know, the last phase of the investment process, is, I call it drag, which is really how much does it cost to run a strategy? And you know, that includes transaction costs, you know, setup costs, you know, a lot of the variable costs um, like hedging, et cetera, as well as headcount and infrastructure costs. Um, across the you know, very focused on, on um, the cost of buying and selling, so that transaction cost element, or using machine learning to better understand transaction costs and model them. So at every level, we've got an element of either machine learning or AI. And then within that, 
um, what kinds of strategy? I know you're running different portfolios, so different portfolios have different strategies. But is it, you know, are you looking for mean reversion strategies, long short strategies, momentum strategies, macro strategy? I mean, how, what is that universe of things that you do and how do you decide what goes into a portfolio? Do you have a, you know, a, a multi-product portfolio or are they all broken out by different, you know, different strategies? How does that work? Sure. So we're primarily focused on equities right now. And we have long-only strategies as well as long, short, market-neutral strategies. And that's not exhaustive, but that's where we are right now. And within that, also, if you can talk a bit about time horizons as well, because, again, everybody thinks you're operating the micro-millisecond, but that's high-frequency trading, which is a whole different business. So if you can talk a bit about that as well, it would be useful. We're really focused on longer holding periods versus high-frequency trading. It's a different business that they do. There's an enormous amount of infrastructure required to do that business. And there are some unbelievable players in that business. Where we really focus our attention on is the one month down to potentially one week holding period. But we're not, we're not looking for very short term trades. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're really looking to pick up you know, several percent on a trade basis. And obviously, we're diversifying our portfolio. So if we're looking to make you know, 2 or 3% on a trade, you know, we have a wide array of trades um, that we, we have on. And the turnover of the portfolios is dependent on market conditions. Uh, with more volatility, we typically have more turnover, lower volatility, lower turnover. But our holding period is very much aligned with typical hedge fund holding periods in the long short side and typical long only mutual fund holding periods on our long only portfolios. So when you're, when you're looking at, let's say, capturing 3%, I presume you're then also kind of risk adjusting that 3% because 3% in Bitcoin is nothing versus, you know, 3% in a 10 year treasury or a two year treasury. Now, you know, those are the extreme examples. Of course. So I guess you're looking at it in those terms as well, the quality of the returns. Absolutely. So, like any or like many long short strategies, we're focused on producing you know, good you know, solid returns with good sharp ratios right on a risk adjusted basis, um, putting up good numbers. And our models take that into account. So our models are aware of the beta of a stock. Our models are aware of the Sharp, the realized sharp ratio of a given security, right? They're aware of the realized sharp ratio of a given portfolio that's been constructed. So risk-adjusted returns are, are critical to us like they are to, I'd hope, you know, almost every other investor. And do you test what is a risk-adjusted return? Because there's a whole other nuance within that because, you know, maybe sharp is not the best way of looking at uh, potential future re- expected returns or whatever it is. Do you, do you look at trying to understand that and dig into that side of it? Because many of us make assumptions about things that maybe don't hold up when you test them. I use Sharp as kind of a, a relatively straightforward example that most people discuss when they're speaking about uh, risk-adjusted returns. But when we're thinking about risk on the downside, we have you know the 
typical array of features that you use to, to assess downside risk. But we also incorporate some regime type models, which we view do a better job at understanding the tail properties of, of individual names. And if I'll go back to some of the points I made on clustering, it's pretty interesting when you look at how stocks cluster through time. And in some periods that we'd view as very favorable to picking stocks, you see relatively numerous distinct clusters uh, with stocks behaving in a relatively idiosyncratic uh, pattern. But through periods of stress and turmoil, what you frequently see is aggregation of clusters. And you start to see pictorially that risk on, risk off uh, feature in those clusters. And in periods where you see clear winners and clear losers, you also see that. So if you go back to the Trump election, there were some clear clustering occurrences um, that you'd see uh, between stocks that had uh, that paid high taxes versus stocks that paid low taxes, right? Small caps versus large caps. So the features of those clusters became very distinct, and you really saw a, a bifurcation of the market in that period of time. So when you see something like that, that sets you up an opportunity to say, can we capture some alpha out of noticing these clusters or the changing clusters that maybe the market hasn't picked up yet? Well, obviously so, the market has it's in price, but not cogn- cognizantly. So we use those cluster definitions as features in our model. So rather than responding in a human sense to it, we build that feature into the model so that the model understands during periods of where clustering looks like this, X, right? This is what the risk profile could be, right? This is what the risk profile has been in the past. And when clustering is in a Y state, then the risk profile or the expected risk profile is likely different. So it's a feature that we use to train the algorithm. What's the difference between AI and machine learning in your, from your perspective? It's kind of a, a relatively uh, blurry definition. Yeah, because some people use them interchangeably and other people get angry at you if you use them interchangeably. So I'm just fascinated what your view on it is. So I, use, I think of machine learning as any, any model that typically goes beyond the linear multi-factor models. They're an array of models that are deemed you know, machine learning models, um, K-means, uh, Lasso, they have names like that. And they're basically changing the way that you... Um, you group data, right? You're, you're basically treating your features differently than you would in a, a multi-factor model. The transition to AI, I, I really see as when you move into uh, deep learning processes, so using convolutional neural networks, uh, recurrent neural networks, uh, LSTM, long short-term memory unit-based networks, um, I think that's really where the term AI comes into play. And those, those tools are typically valuable in things like 
natural language processing. Um, they're useful in some cases in, in doing prediction, um, but it's, it's, it's very blurry. And you know, there's an edge in machine learning that you could argue is AI, and there's early stage AI that you might say is just machine learning. So uh, I think of them as tools that go beyond the traditional toolbox. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Is this not a very expensive and difficult process to enter in to start a business like you've started within Lazard because a you need to select the data sets decide what data sets pay for data sets you need a lot of people to program uh, a lot of people to ask questions I mean it's not a you know one man in his basement hedge fund I mean you've, you've you really have to have a hell of an infrastructure to get going that used to be the case so and I think this is why it's an interesting time to have this conversation. Over the past three to five years, the tools to implement AI have become a open sourced. So Google, Facebook, Uber have open sourced some of their core tools that you and I can go and we can go use them for effectively free right now. Um, in addition, Compute, which used to be really, really expensive, is now available for rent in in the cloud. So you can go and rent by the minute a hundred thousand dollar computer in Google's cloud, and we could do that together in twenty minutes. So that's a big step. So you can kind of pay a la carte for compute. So you don't need a huge room full of servers and you know that kind of stuff so that those exactly. right more and more people are not only well versed in python but the libraries in python have made it much much easier to go and implement some of these strategies so you're right about the data costs um they are higher than you know, some other businesses but a lot of the data that you're buying is data that fundamental guys have already started to buy. So there's not really special AI data. The compute's available and the models, you know, many of the models and tools are, are free now. So the hardest part is building the team. And you know, one of the reasons I moved out to Palo Alto was there are a lot of AI scientists out here. You know, I, I kind of joke and say, if you want to make a movie, you go to Hollywood. If you want to build an AI business, you come to the Bay Area. If things have become more available, and it's not like high-frequency trading, which has this massive cost because it's an arms race, how crowded do these positions get? Because if everybody has roughly the same data sets, and everybody has access to roughly the same kind of models and AI tools, how difficult is it to ask different questions to everybody else to avoid a crowding? And I also want to understand, what does that crowding in this space mean? Because there will be some crowding, obviously. 
in times when everything changes, when everything goes to a correlation of one, which we've just seen, how does that play out in model-based stuff? We're relatively early in AI, machine learning, adoption into investment processes. So the risk of crowding, uh, I think, is, is some time away. So it's not and, like the CTA space or something like that where everybody acts at the same time. Exactly. And the nature of the models and the nature of the tools actually increases the array of questions that one can ask. So if I'm building features out of text data from earnings reports, there might be an array of people doing that, but everyone might not have that as a core feature in their model. So until, every, until there's a large proportion of investors that have effectively increased the price of that, that risk and also increased the downside from that risk, we're, not gonna, we're unlikely to see the effects of crowding. And I think you're, you know, if you go back in time, you know, it took quite some time for quantitative strategies, the more traditional stat-arb strategies, to get crowded. Right? There's uh, an amount of capital that needs to be allocated to these strategies before they really um, feel the effects of crowding. Now, I think the, from a crowding perspective, you know, a more concerning uh, feature is you know, if our algorithms pick trades that are crowded. So we're getting into positions that are similar to quantitative traders, or we're getting into positions that are similar to fundamental long short managers. Right? If the AI converges to those styles and those selections, then crowding becomes a risk. And you know, for that, I went the last point on my point on drag, you know, measuring the impact cost of trades. That's really where you know, understanding the transaction cost dynamics comes into play. So if you're seeing uh, incre increased transaction costs uh, in, given in given names, um, increased transaction costs in given strategies that are, are well-trafficked, um, decreased returns of those strategies, that's a sign of, of crowding. And we can incorporate those changes into our model as a signal, as a risk reduction signal. So you don't think yet the spaces has an implicit short vol position, which many of these do in the end. So once you get into situations where volatility explodes, many strategies, equity long shorts, a classic example, credit is a classic example, suddenly basically they're short vol um, and everyone's returns all fall apart. How, do you, how, how does this space deal with, with those kind of implicit short bowl, bowl bets that many of these portfolios end up constructing? So they, I, I presume they, most of them have some sort of distribution of return profile within it. So the strategies that we, we look at have historically had a typically longer vol profile and typically have done well through periods of vol expansion. So in the recent period of vol expansion, uh, the strategies have done well and in periods where, where you've really seen regime changes, they tend to be slightly more dynamic than some other portfolio constructions. So it's sort of a, 
a positive attribute of the strategies that we're building. There's nothing to say that you couldn't use these tools to build short vol strategies. Sure. But we have a preference to to monetize. Yeah. You're an option trader by nature. So, you know, well, some people are short vol guys and some people are long vol, and that's just exactly. how the world splits down, right? Exactly. And so when you're looking at that regime change, what do you use? Things like vol vol? I mean, do you use price action or are you picking it up from other data? What, what gives you the the kind of signals that, that that help you get that understanding? There are layers within the model, but at a very high level and a differentiated level, things like sentiment. So broad news sentiment, sentiment for key names in the portfolio, key names that make up indices, and sentiment meaning you know, positive news, negative news, um, positive social media, negative social media, um, that type of thing. So as that enables slightly more dynamic properties in the portfolio. So Trevor, within, within this, do you think that AI portfolios, and well, you only know your own, but in general, do you think they tend to be more diversified in structure than the typical hedge fund portfolio? just because of the number of inputs you take are probably broader than many of the hedge funds? Obviously, some people are exceptionally good at, at doing that themselves, but do, do you think that you end up with a more diversified approach? I don't think there's, there's a real rule for that. So typically, you know, our portfolios look similar to, to long, short market neutral portfolios uh, when we're looking at absolute returns. And they look pretty similar to portfolios that are you know, long-only portfolios for our long-only products. So it's not, we don't have a double, triple the number of names. Our bet sizes tend to be less concentrated at the top and more uniform through the middle. Um, many long-short portfolios, many long-only portfolios have you know, concentrated bets and then the long tail of bets. Typically, our portfolios are more are flatter in their distribution in ter- from a bet sizing perspective. That's because there's no human emotion in it. I mean, because we all want to size our what we think is our best bets, the largest. And this way, it's saying, no, we just want the return profile of each individual bet. I think that's a fair, that's a fair comment. Yeah, and some people are brilliant at it. You know, Stan Druckenmiller, he's a genius at sizing yeah. massive bets in whatever. But it's actually, it's actually one of the things that most people stumble on is taking too much risk when they think the idea is the best idea and it may not be. So that brings me on to the return profile versus other strategies. I mean, it's interesting because in-house you've got a number of different strategies within Lazard Asset Management, but also in the world generally. How do you notice the return profile of these kind of more systematic AI-based strategies versus others? Do they have anything concrete, whether it's in alpha or whether it's in vol-adjusted returns in some way? What, what do you think? Well, I think that the difference can live in the downside properties. So really, elimin- not eliminating, but decreasing that, that tail property that you see in, in many, you know, either in an overweight, underweight, uh, long-only book or in a long-short portfolio. Um, because you're bringing in... N- additional features, you're likely running a less crowded portfolio. 
and therefore you're not exposed to the emotional unwinds that can be negative for some of the other strategies. I think we're really early on to make any concrete determination. And I also think the world of AI is diverse enough where this is a toolbox, right? It's not, we can use these tools to enhance strategies. It's not one answer. It's not one answer. And so typically the kind of strategies that you're looking at, again, you're, you're running a range of strategies. What kind of vol are they? And have you experimented with high vol strategies using AI, which tend to be longer term time horizon strategies? Because one of my beliefs is that it's much harder to compete with humans on a longer time horizon where you've got pattern recognition and mm-hmm. you know, that perceived living in the future and too many expected paths to get there for machines to deal with it yet. So have you looked at, at a, what kind of vols you have now and have you ever looked at kind of longer time horizon and higher vol strategies to see what kind of return profiles you get out of that? We have looked at higher vol strategies. Our strategies tend to be lower vol strategies, both in the long only and in the long short world. Where's that? Is that the kind of five to eight vol or you know, whereabouts in the vol? So in the long only world, um, somewhere between uh, 75 to 90% of the S&P type vol. And in long short, you know, typically in the four to eight vol range, right? obviously that's regime dependent. Sure. Um, the longer time horizon is actually pretty tricky. Right? We, as you extend the time horizon, right, the signal degrades, right? the noise tends to take over. And we haven't built strategies that, on a, that do forecasting on a very long-term basis using AI. But we're far more focused on that one week to one month period where there's the potential for the algorithm to have a variant perception versus some of the other uh, investors out there. And that's one of the points I've raised to people who've been concerned that how do they compete with guys like you who um, have a huge experience but are asking all the questions, have the tools, have the deep understanding of all of the, the, the makeup of the markets from a very granular level. It's very difficult for people to feel that they can compete in a marketplace. And one of my um, answers to people like that is be in the longer term time horizon because then it's there's, the, the only competition is humans. So, you know, so, there's an edge there apart from people's brains against brains and luck. <laughs> I think that's good advice, and I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on that answer. When you think of investing, I really break investing into three axes. Right? There's a pricing axis. You can be better at pricing an asset better than other people. Right? You can be better at pricing you know, optionality better. You can be better at pricing you know, yield better. Right? It runs the whole gamut. Um, you can be better at picking people right, for a venture capitalist, picking founders. The other act, the second axis I focus on is holding period, which echoes your point. Right? And that goes from the very, very short term, the milliseconds in the high frequency world, to the multi-year horizon investors in the venture capital and private equity world, to the Warren Buffetts of the world who are saying they're holding things forever. And then the 
The third axis I think about is liquidity. And it's distinct from holding period because there are some assets that are relatively cheap to get into and get out of. There are other assets that have enormous transaction costs, as well as you might not be able to find a buyer, right? It could take years to find a buyer for you know, very bespoke asset classes. Um, so if you look across those three axes, right, there are plenty of places to find an edge, right? And we've, there are amazing investors in every corner of that three-dimensional space. And I think investors need to pick their area, right, in that three-dimensional space, understand their, their core strengths, and look to exploit those core strengths. And I know that's a very generic description, but the great investors that, that are featured all over the world have typically done that, right, have focused on a specific area of that space and done that well. Yeah, it's like Stan Druckenmiller did an hour and a half interview on Real Vision a while back. And one of the things he talked about was he will only, when he's taking a big position, he will only use basically, basically euro dollars or bonds, yeah, bond futures, bonds, or currencies. Because in the end, he said, I can get out in milliseconds, 24 hours a day, and nothing else gives you that ability to manage risk. And so, you know, and his expertise is knowing when to apply massive leverage in, into what is normally a low vol asset. Um, you know, it's, it's super interesting. So just to finish off, I'd love to get your thoughts, because I'm a macro guy, and that means I live in the future. Where's this all going in five years? How do you see this space evolving? Because it's a very interesting, rapidly developing space, and it'll obviously splinter and morph as it goes. But where do you think it's all going? I think we're going to see a convergence of the quantitative and the fundamental. I think, and there's going to be you know, shades of gray throughout that. There'll be firms that are purely quantitative. There'll always be firms that are purely fundamental. And in the middle, you're going to see the adoption. I expect to see the adoption of you know, more quantitative tools that influence the fundamental discretionary investment process where you see the investment process potentially becoming more repeatable, um, less exposed to negative emotional biases. Um, You're able to integrate more granular data. Um, I think our understanding of investing and markets will will increase over the next five years because we are able to use these models, use this data, use this compute to answer questions we never were able to answer before. So that brings me up to one thing is right now, there's the world of human behavioral investing, which is what basically you're exploiting, you know, the, the alpha from understanding that, you know, how people react around earnings numbers, whatever it may be, right? Now, as AI comes up and becomes a more dominant force, where does the signal come from? Because you're then competing against each other. And I, I think that's back to the crowding which, point. The Silicon Valley thing about AI is you get to a point where 
where it takes over from human emotion. Not, not that we're saying that AI runs the portfolios, but they're all observing each other now and not observing the humans because there's less of that around as activity, which we've already seen with index funds, for example, have exactly. very prominent in the market versus the old value investors. I think that crowding point is true for, for many of the innovations we've seen in finance over the years. And if we went back to the 20s, we could go in, document all of the strategies that got crowded, right? We could, if we started in the early 80s, block trading at some point got commoditized and got crowded. Um, you know, StatArb got crowded, right? Then you saw, saw quantitative strategies get crowded, right? Long, short market neutral had periods where it was crowded and became very aware of crowding to evolve. So you know, I don't think there's, there's not a right answer, right? There's so many degrees of freedom in, in investing that you know, as an area gets crowded, it potentially creates opportunities in other areas. But do machines just trade against machines? I guess is the point. As we've seen retail volumes and other volumes falling, do we get to a point where it's you betting against somebody else's machine? Just philosophically, you know. Sure. In a high frequency world, I think you see that today. Yeah, right? In sure. order execution in trading volume, you're effectively, it's algorithm versus algorithm uh, to affect trades. For longer time horizon, I think that becomes a harder, uh, a harder limit to expect uh, because there will be variant perception amongst investors for, for many companies. If, if we all sat around a table to evaluate one company with all of the computers in the world and all of the data, we still could come up with two different answers or three different answers or four different answers. Um, and, and I think, I don't expect that to change. I always expect markets to evolve and the emergence of AI as a tool will foster the evolution of markets. Fascinating. All of this is fascinating to me because, you know, hence I drilled you with a million questions because there's so much learning for everybody and on what it is because not only is it a whole different development going on, but what it also does is ask questions of us as investors, how we run our own processes. Are we asking the right questions? Are we doing the same thing? Are we observing the risk adjusted returns in the right way within our portfolios? Because these are real questions. Just because it's a machine doesn't mean you shouldn't be asking it for yourselves if you're an individual investor too. But I just think, you know, the whole thing is super fascinating. And I, I really appreciate you coming, spending some time to explain it all. And, you know, I wish you the best of luck with it because it, it, it's an amazing space to be in. Um, and it'd just be very interesting to see how it develops over time. Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun, Roll. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.